And tonight, we're going to be thinking about the fact that Jesus cares about our regret. And so that's our topic tonight, regret. And I would imagine that all of us here tonight, if we were honest, in fact, I know this would be true, would say that there are certain things in our lives that we regret. Sometimes I hear a person say, well, I have no regrets in my life. I've never done anything that I regret. In fact, I even heard about a man who went and got a tattoo on his arm that says, no regrets. But notice how that tattoo turned out. Look at this picture. Can you read it from where you're sitting? takes a minute. They misspelled it, and so he does have regrets. They got the G and the E, or the E and the R, I guess, in the wrong place. So I think if we're honest, I mean, I think we would all like to say, I would like to say, I have no regrets in my life. Well, it's not true. The fact is, there is a sense in which I regret every sin that I've ever committed. Now, there is. Now, I don't live under the cloud of regret or guilt, uh, and we shouldn't. But to say, I don't regret anything, I just don't think that's honest, and, and I don't even think that would be normal unless you've lived a perfect life. But if, if you've not been perfect, you have to say, well, I regret that I did this wrong, and yet God does not want us to live being beaten down and condemned and under a cloud of regret where we're just living a defeated life and everything, you know, I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have done that. No, God doesn't want us to live like that. Now, let's begin tonight with a definition of regret, and maybe this will help us. Regret, it's what I think we already know it, but I just want to put it in a definition. It's a feeling of sorrow over something you did that you wish you hadn't done. This feeling in and of itself often leads to feelings of hopelessness. And so we look back on our lives at things we've done, things we've said, and we wish we wouldn't have done that or we wouldn't have said that. Or maybe sometime we look back on situations and we say, I wish I would have done something and I didn't do it. Or I wish I would have said something, but I stayed quiet. And so we have a certain feeling of sorrow, maybe even sadness, Because we've done something and we look back and we say, I wish I would have played that hand differently and I wish I would have uh, not done exactly what I did. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus stayed on the earth for 40 days after the resurrection was so that he could help one of his disciples who had done something he wished he had not done and he was living under a cloud of regret. And that disciple, of course, was Simon Peter. So if you'll open your Bible tonight to the Gospel of Matthew, and I want us actually to begin not looking at Peter, but I want to show you a passage here that deals with Judas Iscariot. And I want to show you an, a, a fine example here of, of regret that never repented. It's, it's regret without repentance. Now, we know that Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus for those pieces of silver, and then when he thought about what he had done, he, he felt badly about it. And, and even Judas uh, was struggling with regret. In chapter 27 of Matthew, look in verse number 3. And the Scripture says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So now, after his sin, now Judas had done something that he he wished he hadn't done. He had betrayed Jesus, and he's remorseful. He's sorry about that. And in verse 4, he even confessed his sin. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. 
Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And so Judas, did he have regret? Absolutely. Did he handle it the right way? Absolutely not. It was regret without repentance. It was regret that led to feelings of hopelessness, so hopeless that he went out and ended his own life. And that's why I said earlier that that's what regret can do to us. It can just cause these feelings of hopelessness. Now, when we think about the sin that Simon Peter had committed, it was a different sin than uh, Judas had committed. But I would have to say this. It was similar. If we're ranking sins or categorizing sins, you would have to say that Judas's sin was a worse sin because he betrayed Jesus. But Simon Peter's sin was a serious sin. He had denied knowing Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. Now, that doesn't mean one denial would mean you wouldn't go to heaven. Or in Peter's case, it doesn't mean that three denials would mean you wouldn't go to heaven. It means if in your life, if, if as a pattern of living, you have denied Christ, you've rejected Christ, then you won't go to heaven. So Peter had committed a very, very serious sin, and he felt badly about it. Now, in your outline tonight, and we'll put this briefly on the screen, I want to just kind of give you an overview of what we're going to be looking at tonight. And I think maybe this will be, be helpful. We're going to be thinking about the sin that Peter committed. We're going to be looking at that. We're going to be thinking about the shame that Peter experienced. He felt badly because of his sin. Then we're going to be thinking about the Savior, Jesus, who forgave him. And then we're going to be thinking about the second chance that Peter received upon his forgiveness from God. Now, tonight, before we even get into any of the scriptures about Peter, I want you to think about not Peter, but about you. And I want you to think about that sin that season of your life, that thing you did or said or failed to do, and you look at it now and you say, I really regret that. And not only do I regret it, but I never have been able to move beyond regretting it. Again, as I said at the beginning, there is a sense in which we re regret all of our sins and we wish we'd never done anything wrong. But you can feel that way and still not be under a heavy cloud of condemnation and guilt and shame. You can say, you know what, I regret it, but God's forgiven me and I'm moving on in my life. So if tonight you've come to the service or maybe you're watching at home and you say, well, maybe this sermon is the one I need because I'm struggling with some real guilt and regret over something that I've done in my life, I pray tonight that God the Holy Spirit would take the truth of His Word and just like Jesus, tenderly, patiently, and kindly brought Peter through that regret and got Peter to a point in his life where he didn't really think about that. He wasn't defeated by that. He moved on in his life and served God in an absolutely beautiful way. Now, you're in Matthew 27. Let's go back in chapter number 26, and let's just begin. And we're thinking tonight about the thing that Peter did that he wished he never would have done. So in Matthew chapter 26, let's look beginning in verse number 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Now, this night was the Thursday night before he was crucified on Friday morning. For it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, 
Notice what he said. I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. And so, when Peter said that, he meant it. As much as he knew his own soul, he just thought, there's absolutely no way that I would ever commit that sin. There's no way that I would ever deny knowing Jesus. It brings to my mind another verse in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Sometimes when we think we would never do that sin, we let our guard down. And if we're not careful, that's the sin that the devil might uh, trick us into committing. And that's what happened to Peter. So he said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. You can forget that. It's not going to happen. Now, stay in Matthew 26 and look down to verse 69. But Peter said, now, by this time, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's been taken to the high priest's house. He's, he's facing a somewhat of a Jewish trial now. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all. See, in the same chapter, only a few verses later, this is the same Thursday night, Peter now is doing the thing he thought he would never do. He denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath saying, I do not know the man. Now for the second time, Peter has done what just a few hours earlier uh, he said he would never do. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. He had a Galilean accent. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Third time, he denied Jesus. Immediately, the Bible says, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Don't want to over make the point, but I just want to make it clear tonight that Peter now has done the thing that he never thought he would do. And he went out and he wept, very similarly to what Judas did. Judas knew he had done wrong. He was very remorseful. And so up to this point, Judas and Peter are basically responding the same way. Now, go to the Gospel of Luke, and I want us to see a little additional insight the, the, the betrayal of, Jesus, of uh, the denial of Christ by Peter is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And I looked at all these today, and it's quite interesting. But if you'll go to Luke chapter 22, I want to show you something that we don't read in the other Gospels. In Luke chapter 22 and in verse 31, Jesus is speaking to Simon, and he's, Simon Peter, and he's explaining about how he would deny him. But Luke gives us additional insight. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And so Satan had gone to Jesus asking for permission to tempt Simon Peter. But I have prayed for you, Jesus said, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to, to prison and to death. Then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me 
three times. So here we just have the extra insight that Satan had requested to sift Simon Peter as wheat. And so Satan was tempting Peter to sin to try to destroy him. Jesus allowed that temptation to take place so that ultimately, even though Peter would sin, that ultimately God could bring something good out of it. Be very clear here, Jesus had nothing to do with the fact that Peter sinned. That was Peter's decision. I'm just saying that Jesus allowed the temptation to sin to happen. Now, move down to verse 61. This is after Peter now has denied knowing the Lord three times. It says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter after that third denial. Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. You can imagine. Think of the worst sin that you've ever committed. Think of the worst five minutes of your life. And now those five minutes are over. And Jesus just looks at you. And you think, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Oh, I can't believe. Well, that was Peter on this night. And in verse 62 it says, so Peter went out and wept bitterly. And so that was the sin and that was the shame that he was experiencing. And again, up until this point... He hasn't really done anything differently than what Judas did. He just felt badly about what he had done. And yet we know that Jesus and Peter got together, and we know that Jesus forgave Peter of his sin. Now, if I were to ask you, when did that forgiveness take place? If we were in a Bible study class or maybe a seminary class, and the question on the test was, when did Jesus forgive Peter of his sin. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to see in John chapter 21, my, del- my dad dealt with this yesterday at the Tuesday Bible lunch. In John 21, Jesus restored Peter and he recommissioned Peter. We might say he put Peter back into the ministry, but there's not anything in John 21 about forgiveness taking place. The question is, when was Peter forgiven of this sin? Well, Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because this is a very interesting thing, and I want to show you when the forgiveness took place, even though we don't read very much about it at all. But as we use our brains, we conclude this is what happened. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, Paul is preaching, and Paul said, for I, or he's writing now, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now watch this. After the resurrection, Paul is now telling us what Jesus did, and that He was seen by Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep, some have died. After that, He was seen by James, and that's James, the Lord's brother. Then by all the apostles. And then Paul said, then last of all, He was seen by me also, as by one born out of due season. Paul's talking about when he saw the risen Christ on the Damascus road. He has this vision of Jesus, and that's when Paul saw him. But again in verse 5, notice what Paul says. We just read right over this. We get to the 500 witnesses in the Damascus road, but notice what he says, that Jesus was seen by Cephas and then by the 12. Now, when was Jesus seen by the 12? He was seen by the 12 on the night of the resurrection. Remember, we've talked about that in the upper room. Jesus had risen from the dead. The disciples were in that upper room. They were afraid. And on Easter Sunday night, Jesus went 
to the upper room, and Jesus uh, reveals himself to those disciples. In fact, one other passage. Go back again to the Gospel of Luke. I just want you to see this, and I know this is a, a lot more Scripture than we normally turn to, but I find it quite interesting. If you'll go back in Luke's Gospel to chapter 24, and a few weeks ago we studied about those two disciples on the Emmaus Road and how Jesus appeared to them and helped them with their hopelessness, and so those two disciples went back to Jerusalem, and they're going to find the disciples. And when they get into the upper room where the disciples were, the disciples are talking amongst themselves, and they are saying, notice what the disciples are saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Here's what I want you to see. On Easter Sunday, after the resurrection, one of the things that Jesus did before he went and got with those disciples on Easter Sunday night, he found Simon Peter, and he had a private conversation with Simon. In fact, the conversation was so private that it's not even recorded in the Scriptures. And yet we're left to believe, and I think it must be the case, that it was during that private conversation that Jesus said to Peter, now, Peter, we've got to have a conversation because on Thursday night, you denied me three times. And I know you're feeling badly about that. And I know you've been weeping. And I know that you have this regret. And I know you feel like your life is ruined. And I know you feel like you can't go on. But I'm telling you, Peter, the reason I died on that cross was that so sins like that could be forgiven. And I want us to deal with that. And so there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus, in that conversation, and I, I don't know that Jesus used these words, but in essence, what Jesus was saying, Peter... I don't want to have this conversation with you when all the other disciples are around. This is not something we're going to talk about in staff meeting. This is something I want to talk about you in private. And this gives us a glimpse into the heart of who Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate gentleman. And Jesus refused to embarrass Peter, to humiliate Peter in front of the other disciples, privately, Jesus went to Peter, and privately, he led Peter to repent. He forgave Peter of that sin, and the forgiveness took place in a private setting like that, which says to me that true repentance always takes place between us and God. Now, it can happen in church. It can happen at home. It can happen on your back porch, but that doesn't matter. But the repentance, in order to be genuine, has to take place between us and the Lord in a very, very private way. And this is what happened. And then after that forgiveness took place, this is when Jesus gave Simon Peter a second chance. Now, that said, go to the Gospel of John. You're in, you're in Luke. Go to John chapter 21. And I just want to read the, this passage and make a comment or two on it because here now is several days, maybe a couple of weeks, three weeks, don't know exactly how long, after Peter has been forgiven of his sins. And, and I just want, before I get off that point, I just want to say, if you tonight are just being defeated by regret because of some sin or some sins that you have committed, the best advice I could give to you would be after this service tonight or maybe at the end of this service tonight, just get alone with Jesus. Confess that sin. Ask him to forgive you of that sin. Let him do it. Receive his forgiveness. And then move on, uh, not living defeated like that anymore. Now, in John 21 in verse 15, at this time now, they're in Galilee. This is probably, I would guess, four weeks or so 
after the resurrection, maybe five weeks after the resurrection. And when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? More than likely talking about these fish that Peter had caught. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. See, now Jesus is not dealing with forgiveness. The forgiveness was a private matter. That's done deal. Now Peter is in Galilee thinking, here's what he's thinking. And I think this is what we all think sometimes. Well, I know God has forgiven me for what I did wrong. But I'm not sure that God could ever really use me again. Yes, I'm forgiven. But I don't really feel like that God, I'm not as usable anymore because of what I, what I did. Well, I think Peter was feeling that way. And I think that's why Peter, for all practical purposes, has kind of now left the ministry, we might say, and gone back into the fishing business. He knew he was forgiven, but he didn't think his life could ever really count for God. And so here's Jesus showing up again, this time in front of the other disciples. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. You went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Verse 19, this Jesus spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. It's interesting. If we went back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, where Peter and his brother Andrew were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee fishing, cleaning their nets. Three years earlier, Jesus had walked up to both of them and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But his first two words to Peter and Andrew, follow me. And they did. They left their nets. They followed Jesus. Now, three years later, after everything that's happened, and most specifically Peter's sin of three times denying Jesus, Jesus said the same thing to Peter that he said at the beginning. He said, follow me. And it says to me that God is not only a God of forgiveness, that God is a God of restoration. God is a God of new beginnings. And God is a God of second chances. And he gave that second chance to Simon Peter. And again, I just want, I, just, I don't know if it's one person, two people, three people, or 10 people, or 50 people, or more that need to make application of this truth from Scripture tonight. God, for that sin, Whatever it is that you did wrong and you say, oh, I wish I had not done that. I never thought I would do that. I can't believe that I did do that, but I did. I want to say to you tonight, not only will God forgive you of that sin, but God will restore you. God will give you a second chance. And God will once again use you in his work, in his service, if you will repent of that sin, follow him, and let him give you a new beginning. Remember this, the devil is our accuser. You think you know all the things you've done wrong? Let me tell you something, the devil knows all the things you've done wrong too. And the devil knows all the things I, that I've done wrong. 
And sometimes the devil can just, we can be praying or doing lots of different things. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, here we have this thought of something we did in high school or in college or as a young adult or maybe even more recently. And we feel so badly about that. That's the devil condemning us and accusing us, trying to beat us down. That is not from God. And we don't honor God. We don't honor God by, by accepting that guilt and shame. I think sometimes we think, well, you know what? In order to demonstrate to myself and to others and to God how sincere I am and how serious I am and how conscientious I am, you know, I'm somewhat obligated to just kind of be beating myself up for that sin. I mean, there's a certain logic to that. It's, it's bad logic, but there's some logic to that. But I think about what the old-time old preachers used to say. They would say this, honor the blood. And when we beat ourselves up over sins that God has forgiven us of, we're not honoring the blood. I mean, think about this. If God has forgiven you of whatever it is you wish you could go back and undo, and yet you still walk around with your heads down, head down and your hands in your pocket beating yourself up, let me ask you this question. What does that say about your own belief in the blood of Jesus? Well, I'll answer that question. Not much. Because you're living, or if I do that, I'm living like we don't even believe the blood of Jesus makes any difference. And so that expression, honor the blood, it means once you have confessed, repented, and turned from that sin, you honor the blood by receiving that forgiveness, by living as though you really are forgiven, and you honor the blood by seeking to live a cleaner life going forward. Remember the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and then Jesus forgave her? What did he say to her? He said, go and sin no more. So the whole idea of honoring the blood is a, is a two-edged sword. We honor the blood by receiving God's forgiveness. We honor the blood by living a different kind of life, a life that we would seek uh, to bring honor and glory to God. Now, you're in John chapter 21 where Jesus has restored Peter. Now, go turn a few pages to the book of Acts, just a couple of pages away. Acts chapter number 2, and we read at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, this is 50 days now uh, after the resurrection, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when it says other tongues, it's not talking about ecstatic utterances. It's talking about languages they had never learned. Pentecost was a Jewish celebration. Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And they didn't all speak Hebrew. They spoke different languages. And so now these disciples are speaking languages that they had never learned. And people are hearing this. Either, either they're speaking languages that they had never learned or they're speaking in such a way that the people listening to these languages are now hearing it in their own language. Either way, it's a miracle that took place. This is the day of Pentecost. Now, look in down to verse number 14. Here's what it says. But Peter, standing up with the 11, that is with the 11 disciples, raised his voice and said to them, and beginning right there, Peter preached the great Pentecostal sermon. Now notice what happened. Look down in verse 41 at the end of this sermon. 
Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so in John chapter 21, Jesus restored Peter to the ministry. He had already forgiven him in private, but he restored him. Two chapters later, Peter's preaching this sermon. He's forgiven. He's restored. He's not beating himself up. He's not saying, no, let John preach or let Andrew preach. No, God told him to preach. And he got up there and preached that sermon, and 3,000 people got saved. You know what that says to me tonight for the person here who you say, John, I know I'm forgiven for that sin, that thing I regret. I know I'm forgiven, but I don't think God could ever restore me and use me again. You know what it says to me? You're only about two chapters away from being used again by God. You two chapters from John 21 to Acts chapter number 2. Now, as I've thought about this, I want to close tonight by giving us four life lessons as we think about how Jesus so tenderly and graciously and compassionately, how he dealt with Peter and this regret. I want to make four statements tonight that I think will be helpful. Number one, don't let your regret lead you to despair. Let your regret lead you to repentance. You see, Judas allowed his regret to lead him to despair. He was hopeless, and he hanged himself. Simon Peter had the same feelings for a similar sin, and yet his regret led him to repentance. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter number 7, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. Paul says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so, if we just have Judas's kind of sorrow, the sorrow of the world, the rest of our lives, oh, look at what I did. I can't believe I did that. But if, we, if our regret leads us to repentance, then it's a totally different ball game, and we feel totally different about it. I heard Adrian Rogers make this statement one time about repentance, and he was comparing it to regret. He said, regret is a dead-end road, but repentance is a super highway. In other words, regret just stops you and you can't move beyond it, just like with Judas. But repentance opens the road up and you just move right on down the road, a forgiven child of God. Now, the verse I mentioned earlier about how the devil condemns us and he's the accuser of our brethren, but notice what it says. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Here's, the great, here's how to overcome regret. Instead of focusing on the sin that you regret committing, think about this. Are you listening? Say amen. Focus on the blood that has washed that sin away so that every time that sin comes to your mind, either from you or from the devil or from somebody else, instead of focusing on the sin itself and being made to feel guilty, just say this. Say, Lord, I'm just thankful that your blood has washed that sin away. And I'm thankful, God, that I don't have to carry that sin. And that sin has been removed as far from me as the east is from the west. And you have cast that sin behind your back. And you've blotted that out of your book. And you'll never bring that sin up anymore. And you don't even remember the sin. Uh, You have let it go and helped me to let that go because that's what repentance does. Statement number two, true repentance leads not only to forgiveness, but to restoration. 
Again, God is a God of forgiveness, but God is also a God of restoration, and God is a God of new beginnings. Now, look at this verse in Galatians chapter 6. I got home from work last night, and in my daily reading yesterday, I read Galatians 6, and notice this verse. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. That word restore in the Greek language literally means to reset a bone. You break a bone, you go to the emergency room, what does that doctor do? He gently resets that bone and puts that bone back in place. Paul says that's what the church is supposed to do. For brothers and sisters who have fallen and sinned and whatever it is that they've done, our job is to gently go to them and reset that bone. And so... True repentance leads not only to forgiveness, but it also leads to restoration. Now, the third thing I would say is simply this. A restored life, after God has given forgiven us, after He has restored us, it creates gratitude in the heart of the restored person, and it creates hope in the heart of other people. In other words, when you see somebody who has sinned, and God forgave them, and then God restored them and continued to use them after the sin... That gives the rest of us hope because we think, well, if God can use them after what they did, then maybe God can use me after what I did. That's one of the reasons I'm so thankful that in the Scripture, the sins of the greatest characters are all out there for us to see. We read about Abraham lying. We read about Moses killing a man. We read about David committing adultery and then murder. We hear about Peter denying Jesus. We read about Jonah going in the exact opposite direction that God told him to go. We had all these, what we would call good and godly people, and they were. And yet at times they're doing unthinkable things, horrible things. And yet what did they do? They repented. They came to God. They confessed those sins. And God forgave them. But not only did God forgive them, God continued to use them. And God, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments after Moses killed that man. Forty years later, now Moses is being used by the Red Sea crossing. Moses is leading all that after he had committed that sin. David wrote many of the Psalms after the sin that he had committed. And so it says to me that all of us have been forgiven of sins. I mean, if we're saved, we've all been forgiven. And to, to some extent, we've all been restored well, we should be grateful for that, and we should be thankful for that, and, uh, and I'm sure that you are, and I certainly hope so. And then the last thing I would say tonight, even after we've been forgiven and restored, we're still, we're still works in progress, and we're still not going to be perfect. Even after God forgave Moses, Moses had other sins. Here with Simon Peter, this denying of Christ, that wasn't Peter's last sin. I mean, we're still all works in progress. I was thinking today, I wonder what the last words that Peter wrote. You know, Peter wrote first and second Peter. Look at the very last verse that Peter ever penned. He says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Peter ends his communication with us by saying this, remember, yes, God forgives. Yes, God restores. But even after that, we're still not perfect. Peter says, what I encourage you to do is to grow in the grace of God. And so tonight, I think the message that God has for all of us tonight, maybe on a different level, maybe pertaining to different sins, but it's still the same message. If we will confess our sins, asking God to forgive us of our sins, He will forgive us. 
and he will cleanse us. And he, if we'll let him, will begin to use us again and give us opportunities to serve him because God is a God of second chances and, and God's not finished with us. I encourage you tonight, whatever it is in your past that might tend to make you just feel down in the doldrums and the regret and the guilt and the shame and all that, I want to say to you tonight, God doesn't want you to live that way. God wants you to live free. It says in the Scripture that Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to lift that load off of us. And to feel guilty over sins that God has forgiven is a false guilt, is not honoring to the Lord, is not honoring to the blood, is not good for us, is not edifying for us. I challenge you tonight in your own life to live as though you really are forgiven because if you've asked God to forgive you, you are. And to let God, and I'm sure he already is, but even in expanded ways, let God use you going forward to be a blessing to others who may have sinned. And I think really all of us should take Paul's advice in Galatians 6 when we find a brother or sister who has sinned and messed up. You know, someone has said that the Christian army is the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. A lot of times somebody has said, look at, look at what you did. Or we'll say, look at what they did. Or we get on the phone and we say, well, it was just a prayer request. You know, I'm just calling, I'm just calling to, sh- to pray for my, for my sister Sheila tonight. She'd been caught in adultery. And I don't mean to be gossiping about her, but I just, just in the form of a prayer request, let's lift Sheila up to the Lord. Or maybe in a Sunday school class we say, you know, remember Bill, how, how he did. He, uh, he did something really bad last week. And, and uh, I don't want to be a gossip, but we need to pray for Bill. And I'm just sharing this so we can pray intelligently. Let me tell you something. That's, hypo- that's hypocrisy to the nth degree. That, is, that, that sin right there may be worse than what Sheila and Bill did. Because all that is is trying to cover somebody else's sin and to disguise it in the form of a prayer request. You don't have to know everything to pray intelligently. It's the Holy Spirit who knows everything. And even after Sheila and Bill's sins all got confessed in Sunday school, you still don't know everything. You just know what they told you Sheila did and what they told you Bill did. And so to pray intelligently, what is that? What we need to do is go to God, I don't know what happened with Sheila, and I don't know what happened with Bill, but something must be going on here. And so, Lord, I lift them up to you. And what I want to do is go to Sheila, and what I want to do is go to Bill in a spirit of gentleness because I'm no better than Sheila, and I'm no better than Bill. And I want to help to restore and reset that broken bone, so that they could experience not only God's forgiveness, but that they could experience God's grace. And so tonight, I encourage you, let God do for you what he did for Peter and what he's done for all of us, what he's already done for you. And uh, let him forgive you and let him use you to serve him. Amen. Father, I thank you tonight that after the resurrection, You stayed on this earth for the better part of six weeks, for 40 days, so that you could help your friends who were struggling with all kinds of issues. Mary was sad. On the Emmaus Road, those two guys were hopeless. Thomas was doubting. And old Peter, he was so discouraged by his sin, he thought his life was over. And yet, God, you stayed right down here on the earth. And you help them work through those issues. And so, Lord, tonight we're thinking about regret. 
And um, Lord, I know you don't want us to live that way. You want us to live grateful that we have been forgiven and that those sins have been removed. So with heads bowed and eyes closed tonight, maybe, maybe this message really applies to you, maybe even more than some of the others. Would you just, if there's something that just keeps defeating you, would you just tell God about it tonight? And one last time, let's just confess that sin to God. And would you say, God, you know what I did. You know what I said. And you know how I would give anything if I could undo it. But I can't. Life doesn't work that way. And so, God, I'm asking you to forgive me of that. I'm asking you to apply the blood of Jesus to that sin. That's why you came. That's why you died. So that that sin could be forgiven. Now say this to God. Say, God, as I ask you to forgive me, I receive your forgiveness by faith. I receive it. I may not feel forgiven. I may not feel differently. But I don't live by my feelings. I live by faith in your word. And you promised to forgive me. So I receive that forgiveness tonight. And Lord, in the future, when this sin comes back to my mind, instead of beating myself up, help me to turn that into a praise session and to say, thank you, Jesus, that that sin is forgiven. You know, this is why Christians should be the happiest people in the world, because God has forgiven us of our sins. I think tonight that would just be a a beautiful thing if just one person tonight could experience and receive that forgiveness and be free from it and move on in life it, and, and not be defeated by that sin anymore. Some tonight would say, John, I need to be saved. I've, I've never had the, the, I've never started out with God. Pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it. In Jesus' name I pray and all the people said, amen, amen.